Welcome to the Inside OSU Podcast. I'm Robin Hearn. Technology continues to evolve. As we've witnessed revolution in communication technology in the past 10 years, what the next 10 years hold can be more transformative. Can also be extremely disruptive and challenging the long health conventions behind public diplomacy programs and strategies. Dr. Sean Powers, the Chief Strategy Officer of the United States Agency for Global Media, sat down with Dr. Randy Kluver to speak as part of the Global Briefing Series to discuss the effects of technology and the Internet in the field of public diplomacy. Take a listen. I know you've recently taken up a new position with the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Can you talk a little bit about what the AGM is and does? The U.S. Agency for Global Media is... Um, a modernized agency. It used to be known as the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Uh, and we are an independent federal agency that oversees five public service news networks, the largest of which is Voice of America. Um, and includes Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and a couple other broadcasters as well. Um, we have a unique and, and simple mission, which is to uh, engage citizens around the world in mm -hmm. support of freedom and democracy which is, is wonderful because we can really focus and prioritize on what kinds mm -hmm. of programs are most likely to actually increase access to information mm -hmm. and foster democratic dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, we, we do so through a free and independent press. And so we have about 3,000-plus journalists that work for our networks. They have uh, guaranteed legislative independence from politicians, so no one at the State Department, no one at the White House can tell them what to cover or how to cover it. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they really prioritize reporting from countries where there is not a free and independent press or where mm -hmm. the economic situation is not, not sustainable for independent media. So think mm -hmm. about Iraq, you think about Sudan. Uh, we've got robust reporting um, about Korea from, from South Korea, countries where you really need external resources to support access to information. Now the agency in its previous, under its previous name, the Broadcasting, Broadcasting Board of Governors has been in existence for decades, right? Absolutely. So uh, the Broadcasting Board of Governors was established when, when the U.S. Information Agency splits, uh, well, I guess um, went away and the uh, traditional public diplomacy efforts um, of USIA, which includes exchange programs and sort mm -hmm. of uh, press operations, mm -hmm. merged into the State Department. And at that time, Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, um, broke off into a separate independent agency mm -hmm. named the Broadcasting Board of Governors. We've since now added three additional news networks. Terrific. And it's such a critical role in helping to establish norms for journalism and, and media freedom around the world. Yeah, we, it's, um, it's a fun job. And, mm -hmm. and one, of the, one of the really cool things is uh, we're a unique federal agency whose mission is to put ourselves out of business. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is um, we, we aim to support free and independent press in each of the countries we operate in. And if, if, the, if the local press is uh, robust and, and sufficient to cover local politics without the need of U.S. AGM, then we actually pull out of the market, which we, mm -hmm. we've done in a number of places, mm -hmm. especially in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. Um, and it's am amazingly gratifying to know that the work that we do can actually change not just mm -hmm. access to information, but also journalistic professionalism mm -hmm. in countries to such an extent where we could say, okay, you've got it from here. We're going to focus our resources somewhere else. That's terrific. Now, in a previous life, of course, you were an academic. You were a tenured professor at Georgia State University yeah. uh, working in communication, media, and international studies. How did you make that transition into government work? Yeah, the, the glory days, right? <laughs> I, miss, I, miss, I miss academia so much. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. 
um, uh, part of my life. And I and I, I always will think of myself as an academic. I mean, I'm drawn to the big research-based questions, and mm-hmm. and I think that that really has helped me in government, frankly, because mm-hmm. um, you know there's is it's hard for folks to get their heads around the vast um, quantities of data that we have mm-hmm. access to. And so, as as an academic, we're we're sort of trained to think critically about how to use information. Um, to ask the right questions and hopefully provide solutions to some thorny issues. I've always thought about structuring my research as an academic, uh, not just in terms of questions that I found interesting, but questions that I knew other folks uh, needed help with as well. And mm-hmm. so my, my scholarship always focused on um, real-world problems, um, including the future of Internet freedom um, and, and what is the proper and responsible role for an international broadcaster to be mm-hmm. playing a public service-like um, mission but at the same time depend on, on state funding. And it's, it's really hard. You know, why would a government want to fund a global news network if that news network doesn't tow that government's party sure. line, right? What incentive does a government have? And mm-hmm. so a lot of my research has always been about demonstrating the value, in this case, of uh, free and independent press and supporting those institutions mm-hmm. to the global security environment, to the United States government, and to, to governments around the world and focused a lot of my research resources on answering those questions. And so in so doing, I um, uh, published a, a number of, of articles that I think resonated with folks at uh, the State Department, mm-hmm. was asked to start working on a couple of projects, which at the time I just thought was fun. It turns out that they were long interviews, basically. Um, <laughs> You're grooming you for a job. Yeah, or, or yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it eventually it became clear that they were um, trying to, to bring me on board and, and um, join the State Department on a temporary basis. I took uh, leave from Georgia State University. They were very gracious in offering mm-hmm. me some time off. Um, and as soon as I got to the State Department and, and just saw the kind of scope of the challenges that mm-hmm. we face and the possibilities of really turning all of the work I'd been doing as an academic into actionable solutions mm-hmm. um, and really being at the front lines of some of these big questions, sure. um, I couldn't help but jump at it. And I don't regret the decision. I miss academia, but obviously I, I do yeah. love my job now as well. Well, good. We're, we're glad you're in that position. So your professional career has coincided with some really epic changes in the global political landscape. I know your early work was on Arabic language media, Al Jazeera. Of course, in 2001, we just suddenly discovered the term public diplomacy. Yeah. And it became very important, the idea of, of reaching foreign audiences to help them understand U.S. policy and so on and so forth. But you've also been active during the rise of the Internet or the multiple Internets, the, the various technologies, digital technologies, which has completely transformed um, how we get news, how we order our lives, how we buy airline tickets, really every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And then finally, in the last four or five years, we've seen really a, a marked increase in global competition with uh, the People's Republic of China, with Russia. How do you see um, your role now as, in a sense, riding that wave, as, if it were, or, or even trying to uh, address those fundamental challenges? Yeah, it's, um, it's a great question, and it's, it's something that's occupying more and more of my time mm-hmm. on a daily basis. When I started writing about Internet freedom, um, it was a space that the U.S. government was absolutely dominant in. Mm-hmm. You know, the Internet freedom movement was something that had robust support from um, civil society groups inside the United States, but the U.S. government as well, and and no country had a chance to compete with us. We had the best mm-hmm. technology, really bright minds, had um, years and years of, of strategy and development. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen um, since then is a lack of focus, n- almost mm-hmm. no strategic thread that combines 
U.S. government internet freedom programs, mm -hmm. um, and just a tremendous amount of resources and strategy by some, some adversarial governments, China mm -hmm. and Russia in particular. Yeah. Um, our, our estimates have the Chinese government putting billions of dollars into new technologies um, that allow for surveillance, active tracking of everything online, and really active control of the mm -hmm. online environment. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. government spends somewhere in the, in the realm of 60 to $70 million per year. We're, we're not mm -hmm. spending enough to keep up. But even before we get to the money question, we don't have a strategy. We don't have a, a unifying theme that says, here's where we are, and here's where we, where we want to go, and here's why. Mm -hmm. And um, recognizing that, uh, the U.S. Agency for Global Media this year, um, which has a, a small piece of that internet freedom puzzle, we've got about $15 million um, to, to support new tools that help our, our mm -hmm. audiences access information. We decided it was time for someone to step up. And so uh, we've made a pitch to, to Congress that we should actually create a new organization called the Open Technology Fund, mm -hmm. um, and that that new organization uh, would would receive additional funding and provide a leadership role across the mm -hmm. U.S. government and across civil society to really make us a lot more competitive in this space. The, the Senate in particular was very supportive of this, and, and I suspect it's going to be uh, a big part of the work that we do moving forward. One of the reasons why the pitch to Congress was so effective is uh, the reason why Internet freedom work needs to be done at, at my agency is we can, we can make the tools in-house, we can develop those tools in-house, and we can deploy them with our journalists and with our audiences mm -hmm. and get real-time feedback in some of the most mm -hmm. difficult environments in the world. And no one else across the U.S. government can guarantee a direct path to getting these technologies in the field and a direct path to hear about how those technologies are working. And that, having that feedback loop built into the process gives us a tremendous advantage mm -hmm. in taking these technologies to market mm -hmm. at, at lightning speed compared to what we've been able to do so far. I think one of the things I find most interesting here is the confluence of technologies with political values. Mm. And you're trying to develop technologies with sort of a baked-in political value of openness and freedom, yep. whereas other governments are trying to build in very different technological infrastructures. How do you see that playing out in the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. It's something I think mm -hmm. we need to be more open and honest about. Mm -hmm. Technology is not neutral. No technology is neutral. Every mm -hmm. technology has politics baked into it one way or another. And I think we need to be honest about the politics that are baked into our technologies. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the tools that, that uh, my office incubated a couple of years ago is called Signal, which is a mm -hmm. highly secure uh, private messaging app um, that's built on some robust encryption protocols that have since become uh, the protocols that back uh, WhatsApp, Skype, and Facebook Messenger. They're basically mm -hmm. the industry standard for privacy technology at this point. And so we get to say, uh, and I like to say this a lot, that 2.2 billion cell phones around the world uh, have U.S. AGM incubated technology installed on them. And, and that's something we have to own. Um, we will always support open source technology. Nothing mm -hmm. that we support can be proprietary or used to make uh, for-profit, for basically. It has to be open source mm -hmm. and available to the rest of the sector. Mm -hmm. Everything we have um, prioritizes um, security of the individual. Mm -hmm. um, and nothing we, we create allows for surveillance, either from the U.S. government or from any mm -hmm. other entity. And those are the values that that are baked into our technologies because we think that they're essential to a free and independent society, free and open press. Sure, yeah. So let me change gears just a little bit. You're in a, a highly diplomatic arena in, in terms of you're in Washington, D.C. You've yeah. got really the focus of the world there. Uh, you work very closely with your colleagues at State Department as well as other U.S. government agencies. What role do you see artificial intelligence playing in the future of diplomacy, in the future of statecraft, in the future of even military conflict? Yeah, a big role. Um, and it's, 
it's one that I think the U.S. government's been very hesitant to really dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, there are pockets of investment and pockets of, of thinking and deep interest in AI mm-hmm. across the U.S. government. But again, if you ask yourself, what is the strategy? What are the guidelines for how AI should be approached? Um, what are the ethical parameters for AI tools that we want to integrate? Mm-hmm. And what are we trying to achieve? We simply don't have those conversations maturing to the extent that we need to be competitive in this space because we see in the field other governments using these tools for a variety of purposes, many of which um, are to the detriment of, of our national security, to, mm-hmm. be, to be quite frank. And so we have mm-hmm. to double down, uh, invest in these tools, and think carefully about how they can be helpful. And in particular, how, do they, how can they create efficiencies that then free up um, people's time to then do more difficult work? Because AI can do a lot of analysis. AI mm-hmm. can... Um, streamline a lot of workflows, but AI is not going to help us engage person to person on the streets of of Beijing. You know, sure. AI is not going to help us persuade folks to come to American universities for their PhDs. Mm-hmm. That's human engagement. But mm-hmm. but AI can solve a lot of problems that people, human beings, spend a lot of time on. I mean, sure. a remarkable amount of time on, including streamlining workflows, but also detecting you know fraudulent contracts and that sort of thing, mm. which, again, a lot of folks in the U.S. government spend a lot of time on. We need to use AI tools to, to deal with some really big, thorny issues. The DoD, mm-hmm. of course, is thinking about these in the context of, of mm-hmm. warfare, which is important as well. Sure. But not all of it's got to be super sexy. Not all of it's got to be headline news. Some of it can be tool, AI tools that are already built by Microsoft mm-hmm. and other providers that can just make us uh, much smarter about how we use our time. And frankly integrate AI tools into the culture of the State Department and the U.S. Agency for Global Media so that folks are much more familiar with the technology. Right now, if I bring up AI, half of my colleagues think I'm talking about the Terminator. <laughs> and, and, and there is a fear uh, around technology sure. in general and about right. artificial intelligence yeah. in particular that is, is, it's a cultural fear. And we really need to help folks understand not only the tools and the possibilities, but also mm-hmm. what is our approach to these tools so that mm-hmm. people feel comfortable and they don't feel like we're trying to, you know, take their jobs from them mm-hmm. or or lose control over these technologies themselves. Sure. So one of the things that's very interesting, of course, is, is that the U.S. economic model is often predicated upon technological development is driven by the private sector, mm-hmm. not the government. Yeah. But historically... It's been government government investment that drove a lot of the life-changing technologies, including air travel, rocket travel, the rise of the Internet, yeah. and so on and so forth. But yeah. we often uh, think, no, no, we need to leave that to Microsoft or to Google. They, they, they should take the lead on that, right? But yet other countries see the state as having a much more prominent role. Yeah. Among the U.S. allies, what's the attitude, say, France and Germany and Britain? What, what is their attitude towards government investment towards these technologies? Uh, it's a good question. I'm, I don't have exact figures off the uh-huh. top of my head, but I, I don't sense, my, my sense is that uh, most of our, our European allied governments are in a similar boat as the U.S. government, which is mm-hmm. to say recognizing the significance of these tools but not fully um, on track to compete in this space. The, the market question you raised is a really good one, and I, I kind of want to comment on that quickly, which is, you know, private sector is wonderful for developing a number of, of mm-hmm. technologies and a num- number of tools. What we've seen is AI tools in particular, when driven by market incentives, which is to say for-profit incentives, are not necessarily all that valuable for the, the, the work that governments do, and frankly, don't really maximize what AI, AI is capable of. Sure. Um, you know, Unfortunately, there's a lot of money in the surveillance uh, business. There's mm-hmm. a lot of money in the advertising business. And so you see a lot of AI tools applied in surveillance and advertising. 
I don't care about advertising. The government doesn't need ads to, to sure. support its model, and and I'm against surveillance. And yeah. so, you know, from my perspective, AI is uniquely suited for a substantial public investment because if it's left to the private sector or foreign governments, uh, the the tools that we know are uh, we're capable of producing simply won't be available to us. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a a fascinating title. I love it, Chief Strategy Officer for the Agency for Global Media. And that means that you're really at the sector of thinking about what is the future like and, and looking at current trends, looking at current capacities, current capabilities, and trying to chart out the future. Yeah. Where do you think your agency will be 10 years from now? Yeah, it's, it is a question I spend a lot of time thinking about, and it's a, the, most, the, the most fun part of my job, obviously, yeah. is, is trying to get above the day-to-day -day weeds. Um, one of the things that I've uh, had my team focused on for the past couple of months is uh, a project called the Future of Distribution. So mm. you look around the world and, and you quickly realize the ways in which information flows from country A to country B mm -hmm. are changing dramatically. You know, we went from primarily you know, te you know, telegraph and radio signals for large parts of the 20th century to an internet-based um, kind of global communication ecosystem um, more recently. And, and that ecosystem is about to get a lot more complicated and interesting mm -hmm. with things like 5G, 6G, low Earth's uh, orbit satellites, uh, you know, digital shortwave technologies, which are a combination of digital and shortwave transmissions. And right now, it's unclear to us which of these platforms are going to dominate mm -hmm. in which parts of the world, and, and if there is going to be a consensus on which standards are going to be used. And so from the agency's perspective, we have to invest in all of them, and we have mm -hmm. to be agile and, and be able to hop from one to another if and when a particular market um, gets tricky. If the government shuts down the internet, for example, we have to rev up our shortwave transmitters um, because that's the best way to get information into a country when it's gone sure. data dark, basically. Yeah. And it, my boss doesn't like this answer because it means we've got to invest in a lot of different tools and technologies, <laughs> and it means it, it, you know continued investment. Sure. Um, but it's the only way to prepare for the next 10 years because anyone who says they know what, what the world's um, global communication ecosystem looks like in five mm -hmm. or 10 years yeah. has no idea what they're talking about. Well, I, um, I'm, I think of Joel Perry Barlow's famous declaration of independence for cyberspace 15, 20 years ago and just how incredibly naive it seems <laughs> when you read it today. It's, it was a wonderful concept. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and yeah, it's just not real. It's um, just not real. It's we, just not we're, real. We're facing a very different world now. Yeah. So let me pull it back around to uh, the universities. You're, of course, in Washington, D.C. You've got a lot of universities in the D.C. area. We're in Stillwater, and we're training students to be bright young leaders in, in their chosen fields. But uh, earlier today, you met with some of our students, and you talked to them about really what does it take to prepare for a career of global impact. Can you hit some of the highlights from as, as you think about giving advice to students, how do they prepare for a, a, a future? What yeah. would you get, what would be the best advice you'd give them? Yeah, um, thanks. I, I, I think it's a fascinating question because you, mm -hmm. you, you think, you go back in your own history and you kind of ask yourself, what, what could I do better, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But you know, first and foremost, and I, I've said this to a number of your wonderful students, is, is do everything you can to enjoy the experience you have right now. And I, I really mean that sincerely. Uh, I don't have time in my days to read a book. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know you don't have time in your days, most of the days, to read books uh, or articles, um, you know, to be current on the literature. Some amazing research is being done out there. And mm -hmm. you know, once you get on the professional fast track, it's just really difficult to carve out the time for these big conversations and kind of thorough reads. And mm -hmm. graduate school is that unique opportunity where you are, l your job is literally to do just that. And mm -hmm. so 
I think it's hard when, when students are running from class to class and from extracurricular activity to you know graduate student assignments to um, papers and exams, it's hard to just enjoy that your job is to learn and think mm. carefully and, and keep on learning. Um, and, and first and foremost, it's to kind of take a, a breath and say, okay, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and I, I need to find ways to enjoy it as much as I can because the rest of my life is not going to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there is, is just really finding your passion and being proactive mm-hmm. about chasing it down. So sure. figuring out you know, what, what part of the field you see yourself contributing in mm-hmm. and, and what is your contribution, both as a person, you know, where do you think you can add value, um, solve a problem, um, make people think differently on a, a question that's been really slowing folks down, and, and how, does, how does your experience, your, your time at, at Oklahoma State, um, your personal experience, your work history, give you leverage in that mm-hmm. conversation? How do you say, I, I can help you solve this problem because I've been thinking about it and because I understand the issue from a different perspective? Mm-hmm. And, and embracing that, that entirety of the persona that is required, I think, to really be a leader and, mm-hmm. and come out of graduate school and be ready to, to jump into the professional core, be it nonprofit, mm-hmm. government, or academic. Terrific. So I'm going to take that clip and I'm going to show it at all of our student orientations at this point and say, <laughs> uh, one final question. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about having deep experience as a university faculty member, doing research in these very fields. Now you're, of course, in a, in a very different field in the government. Um, what can universities do better to really tackle some of these big issues? And I'm thinking not just in terms of the research, the preparation for the students, but but the other ways in which uh, the universities might, might really help to uh, strengthen the efforts of, of the United States and, and our allies to really create a more stable global order? That's uh, a great question. Um, I had a great experience at, at Georgia State and um, am still thrilled by how supportive they were of my work. Um, and not every academic institution would be as supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, not to get too deep in the weeds on the tenure process, but you know there are a number of universities whose tenure processes um, really judge folks based on a specific set of academic criteria, mm-hmm. and work that's policy relevant is not often considered as all that valuable, and that's mm-hmm. a huge problem because mm-hmm. uh, at an early age you're you're structured to think about policy relevant work as as tertiary to the academic enterprise. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is to the detriment of the United States. It's to the detriment of our society, truly. I mean, beyond the kind of national security perspective, just engaging with the policy process is what all scholars should do. And, and the ways in which um, promotion is incentivized at most universities, uh, it does not allow for those, those conversations. And so I think that has to be part of the conversation. So thinking about promoting people not just based on the number of peer-reviewed articles, but also the number of um, policy reports that have shaped policy conversations is is crucially important. I um, I love this example. So earlier this year, uh, I commissioned a report of five academics, journalism professionals, journalism professors rather, um, to assess one of our our networks, and um, gave them complete independence. They reviewed the clips on their own and um, basically gave them a couple of questions to answer. But really, um, told them you can be happy, you can be critical, you can decide on your own, whatever you guys want. Um, and they came back with a really compelling report on how to fix uh, our office of Cuba broadcasting, which mm-hmm. broadcasts from Miami into Cuba. The report was was terribly critical of the current effort. I mean, so critical mm-hmm. that it, it was sort of like, uh, you know, sometimes professors can be super critical of graduate student papers. They kind of felt like <laughs> like that like wrath was coming out. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but of course, we, we, we went straight ahead and said, we, have, we committed to publishing this publicly. We're going to you know, publish it publicly, even though it's very critical of our own work. Uh, that report 
has since spun up an entire modernization effort to rebuild the Office of Cooper Broadcasting from scratch. It was cited by two different pieces of congressional legislation, which is phenomenal, right? You think about a, an academic report actually being cited in law as a reason to support a modernization effort. It's never happened with my research. So. <laughs> and, and me neither. And, and, and I just, it's, it's one of these things where I think um, we, we need to find ways to, to bring academics closer to the policy uh, world so they can bring their expertise and then help, and help them uh, make sure that the expertise is brought to bear in ways that actually shape the work that we're doing. Special thanks to Dr. Powers for taking the time to sit down with Dr. Kluver as part of the OSU Global Briefing Series. That's all from the Inside OSU podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. I'm Robin Hearn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>